How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. It is my joy, delight, as Dave Gibson would say, kick in the pants to have Dr. David F. Gibson on the broadcast. Thanks for doing this, friend. Great to be here, my friend. Thank you. We met in 1986. Six. Okay. So I was a new pastor at Grand Prairie Bible Church in Grand Prairie, Texas. You were a missionary supported by that church, and at the time you were in Alaska? Alaska Bible College. And how, how long were we up there? Eight years altogether. Eight years. So um, I'm preaching this this wonderful little church home in Grand Prairie, and uh, this was back when they had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I was preaching too many times. And uh, the elder over missions came to me and said, hey, we have this uh, missionary coming in town. He's a pretty good preacher. I said, can you tell him when? <laughs> tell me when. <laughs> and you preached that Sunday morning, and, and I sat there giddy, not only because I had a Sunday off, but you were good. And we invited you and Kathy over to our little humble abode in Grand Prairie, Texas. And we've been friends ever since. And that's that's a pretty long run. That's a great joy, my friend. It really is. I was thinking about that this morning. And your daughter, Hannah, here producing the show, having her third child. And I don't know how old she was in 86 when we met. Well, but She would have been like four or five. Yeah. Because so, we didn't have Jesse at the time, did we? No. We hadn't adopted Jesse. No. So, um, but tell the backstory because you were a little nervous. <laughs> I, w- I was exceedingly nervous because when you're a missionary and you raise support, it's great to have people who get behind you in a big way. But Grand Prairie Bible Church has gotten behind us at that time to one third of our support. In other words, a ton of money. And I'm thinking to myself, Grand Prairie has a new pastor. And what if he doesn't like me? No, wait, that's what, not what you whoa, said. Whoa, whoa. You didn't call him a new pastor. You called him a... I have forgotten. Was it something good? No, it wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this crazy guy? They yeah. are, this new whippersnapper pastor. Yeah. He's not going to like me. He's going to fire me. They got this new galoot, and he's going to fire me, and uh, they're going to stop supporting me, and I'm going to be coming home from the mission field if this guy doesn't like me. And so it was a point of great anxiety. Which is so funny because you preach such an incredible sermon. In fact, that same elder who's now with the Lord came up to me and goes, did that intimidate you? Because <laughs> you were so good. And I said, no, I got a Sunday off. It doesn't bother me at all. And then we did the uh, doctoral program at Dallas Seminary together. We were talking about how that all worked out. You have a little different memory than I do. I think you were signing up for it, and that got me the idea. But anyway, we ended up doing much of our demon work together, and uh, you finished on time, and it took me a little longer. <laughs> well, uh, the reason I finished on time, Michael, was if you don't mind me regaling you with a short story, I did all the classwork, and the dissertation looked like zero fun to me, and I wasn't going to do it. And I went home and told Mrs. Gibson, I'm not going to do that. And she said something like, excuse me? (laughs) Did we pay all this time and all this money for you not to finish? I don't think so. So I did finish. 
Well, Mrs. Easley and I had the very same conversation, but it took me 10 years to finish it. I had a personal problem. <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Gibson had me a little better trained than, than you were trained, perhaps. No, no. I had, a, I had a problem, but we won't get into that. Let's talk about these 10 questions. So if you're newer to the broadcast, what we do is I pull uh, some of my friends and acquaintances in, and I ask them these 10 questions about life. And so the concept of in context is how we understand and apply the Bible. We understand it in the context it's written, and we apply it to our lives. So what I want to do is a double entendre. How do you live out in context of your life, in the context where you are, the way God uh, has wired you and what you do? So I will start by saying my context is pure blessing. 49 years ago, Jesus rescued me, which has been obviously changed the trajectory of my entire life and my eternity. Deeply grateful for that. Uh, if I live another, another year, I will have followed him for 50 years wow. and uh, not, not necessarily followed him uh, faithfully and well, but certainly followed him and deeply grateful. Been married to a wonderful woman for 46 years, which is a joy. We have three grown married children, 10 grandchildren, greatest, greatest gig on the planet. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it. But Michael, my current context is that uh, I was in ministry 42 years and I retired two years ago. And uh, God has just given me a terrific life at this point. I'm deeply grateful. And as I probably have told you, there's two kinds of retirement. Number one is uh, sit on your porch, suck down Diet Coke, and scream at kids to get off your yard. I do not want to do that one. But you just put a sign in your yard. Right? <laughs> I just, who's got time to scream at them? Uh, the only children ever on my yard are my grandchildren, and they can be there. And they all can do day. whatever they want, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and the other kind of retirement is to say, Lord, I'm alive. I've got health, strength. Uh, I'll do whatever you bring to me. And God has brought to me preaching and teaching and mentoring young pastors and encouraging folks and a little bit of crisis counseling and a little bit of church health consulting and chances to fix the neighbor lady's fence. And I mean, it just goes on and on. So when uh, we, we've interviewed another one of my dear friends, Robert White, and I don't know if you've listened to that broadcast or will listen to it in the future, but one of the things he and I talked about was when you retired, we were in Dallas, Texas at a Mexican restaurant. And I said, share with Robert and Liz your retirement plan. And you pulled out a sheet of paper, if I remember, because you're paper brain, as you call it. And you had like 25 things written down that you were going to do in retirement. And Robert and Liz and I sat there with our mouths open in amazement going, this guy's put thought into it. Where did that come into your head that, okay, I don't want to get off my lawn and drink Diet Cokes and get a pot belly, but I want to do something. You know, I, I think it's for because, and I, Let me interrupt you. Because most people don't do this, Dave. Most people do not sit. That's why they play golf. And it's nothing wrong playing golf. They live to play golf. They live to go travel. They live to go see their kids, which is all fine and good. But you and I have had this conversation. You said, no, there's got to be a lot more specificity in what I'm going to do with these years. I, I'd say the answer is largely because I watch people do it in two different ways. I watch the guys who did five-day-a-week golf. They were on the course Monday through Friday when it wasn't busy. And they put her in their garages on the weekend, and I just felt, God, I don't, I don't want to live my life that way. And I watched my friends, like my friend David Roper, who retired, started the ministry to pastors, kept writing. I mean, the man's almost 89. He still writes every day. And I just uh, contrasted those kinds of approaches to life and said, I don't want to do it that way. And so I, I gave myself a new title, Michael. It's called the Intermountain Ridge Runner. And 
Where did that come from? I don't know. But <laughs> well, it sounds good. Though. It sounds good. And it it's sounds at, cool. It's at the top you, of you my. Do you have a logo? You have a logo? I have a logo. I do. <laughs> professionally made. And it's at the top of my business card and top of my, you know, sheet that you referred to from our Mexican dinner. And I just said, God, if you'll give me these opportunities to do this stuff, I'll do them. And I'm horrible, Mar Michael, at marketing myself, marketing anything. So I just, I just gave up on marketing. I just said, Lord, if you bring me something, I'll do it. So. He brings me a chance to talk to Michael Easley on In Context, and I say, bless God. What has been the greatest challenge in your spiritual journey? The greatest challenge has easily been my personal spiritual stubbornness. I heard someone define it as your inner brat. <laughs> Not <And> child. <laughs> inner brat. Inner brat. <laughs> this is the kid who's laying on the aisle of the grocery store beating the floor because his mother won't buy him a cake pop. And I'm afraid I've done that uh, way, way, way too much in my life and continue to wrestle with that. And the famous D.L. Moody quote, I've never had as much trouble with any man in the world as I have with myself. And I would say head and shoulders. I mean, the, the, the trouble I've caused myself with anxiety or anger or wanting stuff I didn't get or failure to pursue God or bad habits. I mean, the list goes on and on. So it's been a massive struggle. I'm not struggling with it as bad as I did when I was 21, but I kind of say to myself, good golly, I should be beyond where I am right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, Robert and I have talked about this over the 40 years of our friendship, is when do you get to the point where you stop worrying about anything? I mean, anxiety is such a, we know it's a waste of energy. And like Moody said, I can tell you, well, stop worrying, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but I wake up in the morning, I worry about, am I going to have to have another surgery? Am I going to live with chronic pain? How am I going to manage this chronic pain? And before long, this snowball is just eating my lunch. And I go, wait a minute, I got today. It's a gift. It's a gift today. And that whole issue of anxiety is such a massive one. You know, in my own life, Michael, uh, I've had such a massive struggle with it. And I encounter so many people struggling with it. Well, that was my next question is I think it's almost universal unless a person's like deeply in denial or they're angry because it seems to me, and that's one way I veil it, is I can be angry as a secondary emotion, right? As opposed to admit I'm anxious. Deeply in denial, angry, or so ridiculously arrogant that you don't understand mm -hmm. how tentative your life is and how dependent you are on God. You know, I have a precious granddaughter, six, six years old. Sweet girl, loves God, good student in first grade, and wakes up one or two times a night, you know, anxious with mm. a bad dream. And, you know, so so here's grandpa making Bible verses for her to put on her wall so she read them before she go to bed. And I'm just thinking, sweetheart, of all the things I could have left you, why did I leave you this? You know? <laughs> Do you put them on your wall too? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you should. I have, I have. You have quotes on every wall. I do. Yeah, I have yeah. thousands of quotes, Michael. Yes, Mrs. Gibson, I've talked about this. Yeah. <laughs> Key verse or favorite book of the Bible? My favorite book, which I'll not spend too much time on, is a toss-up between Psalms and the Gospel of John. Psalms, I just love with a passion. They're just so varied, so intense, so amazing. The Gospel of John, because uh, I came to faith through studying the Gospel of John, by myself in my bedroom. Uh, and I, you know, for all the years I've known you, I didn't know this story. So almost 50 years of following Christ. So tell us, I mean, how, so you're reading the Bible at home? I was raised in a mainline denomination. They taught me how to make God happy with me by the works I did. The longer I did it, the further from God I got, the more I knew it wasn't working. About the age of 12 or 13, I began to descend into what 
I now can identify as mental illness. I was afraid of God, afraid of my dad, afraid of the dark, afraid of small places, afraid of high places, afraid of girls, afraid of public speaking, afraid of being, you know, getting in a fight with a bully. I was afraid of everything. I had obsessive compulsive thoughts. I was falling to sleep at 3 a.m. out of exhaustion, Mm. waking up at 6 a.m. to go about life. When I was 18, I went to hear a Bible speaker whose name you would know if I mention it, I will not, spoke on the end times and spoke about the Antichrist. I decided, Michael, in my insanity that I was probably the Antichrist because the Antichrist had a head injury, came back to life. I'd had a head injury in second grade, very nearly died. I decided I might be the Antichrist. I mean, this was the level of crazy crazy in my head. I had nobody to speak to. Wouldn't think of speaking to anybody. Right. Can't admit that. Cannot say anything. Yeah. So I go to a campus Bible study. On the way out, they hand me a little Bible study on a mimeograph piece of paper. I mean, you're old enough to remember. I do remember. I used to, I used to yeah. type them up and crank them out. Yeah. I still have that paper on my desk. Do you really? I do. And I took it home, studied it. It guided me through passages in the Gospel of John. I trusted Christ by myself in my bedroom in the great kindness of God. Goodness gracious. You know, John three sixteen was the verse. You've heard my story. It was The guy wrote it on a green chalkboard with white chalk. And we read the story of Nicodemus, and I, I was like, wait, 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 wait. What about all these good works I've been told i got to do? What about going to confession? What about doing this, doing that? And there? What about the sacraments, all the stuff in the main line I grew up in? And he goes, what's the verse say? <laughs> like three times. You mean all i got to do is believe, you know? It's, how, how old were you, Michael? Well, that's 15, 14, 15, yeah. Bless God. Yeah, yeah. Let me say my favorite verse, Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hands are pleasures forevermore. And just amazing to me, the things we love are life, joy, and pleasure. And God says, life, joy, and pleasure, all found in me. Everything else is counterfeit. It's all found in me. And, yeah, and only his are legit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And as Bob, Dr. Bob Tulson would say, and his left hand ain't bad either. <laughs> <laughs> what a great way to put it. Uh, what two or three books besides the Bible have been helpful to you? I've probably had 20 books over the course of my life that God brought into my life at the right time, and he just picked me up by the lapels with that book at that time. Most recently, I would say, Teach Us to Number Our Days by my friend David Roper, which is a three-page-a-piece chapters, probably 50 chapters on what does it mean to age well, love God well as you're aging. The man's spiritually brilliant. I love it. And I just finished a book called Living Life Backwards. By you, you gave me that book. It's, I on, did. My, it's on my to-read pile yeah. on my desk. Please get after it, Cowboy. Well, yeah, I got, yeah I'm, I'm working on them. Okay. It's written by a guy named David Gibson. No relation. No relation. He's from England. I wish I'd written this book. It would have been a joy. But his basic message is, most people in the world are playing, let's pretend I'm not going to die. And it's a game you play that says, everybody else dies, but I'm not going to. And therefore, you fight like everything to resist aging, to resist everything, resist pain, resist looking bad, resist thinking about your death. And he says, one of the messages of Ecclesiastes is, until you embrace the day of your death, you cannot live well. And the book is profound. I, I read the book. I've given it away to a bunch of people. I'm one of them. What is one of the biggest lessons you've learned at this point in your life? Again, I'm going to lobby for two lessons, please. Number one, 
is the ridiculous, overflowing, superabounding grace of God. So I experienced grace at the age of 19 when, when I understood for the first time, Jesus paid for my sin, don't have to work it off. It's already been taken care of. And it was a, it was a, a flood in my life that was terrific. Probably five or six years ago, I came into a sort of a reconnection with God's grace for everyday life. And I don't have to beat myself up. I don't have to continually remind myself I failed again. I said I wasn't going to do that. I did that. On and on and on. Just sort of coming to faith through, you know, to grace at 19. And then kind of slipping back into firstborn, high-drivenness, raised in a religious setting, black and white father, and all the things are just sort of the perfect storm in my life to make me want to be a performer. Mm. And uh, a lot of it happened, Michael, through this this uh, ministry called True Faced, about four or five writers out of Phoenix, and they've written a number of books, and they are just so intensely focused on grace and the, and the concept that I, I have in my life just this unforced favor that Jesus accomplished for me. Uh, I've got nothing to prove with God. He's endlessly for me, deeply committed to me. Help help out our friends, because I think that performance thing is is pretty, not everybody maybe, but it's pretty pervasive. Ridiculous. I got to do something for God to love me, accept me, forgive me. Yeah. It's ridiculously pervasive. And, you know, I, I tell you what helped me the, the most, Michael, I shouldn't say the most, what helped me hugely. A guy in Austin, Texas named David, he has a last name, but I can't think of it. <laughs> I'll think of it. <laughs> no worries. He gave this illustration that said, my daughter came to visit and she brought uh, our little granddaughter and our little granddaughter Hannah is there and we're having fun playing with her and my daughter says, Hannah needs to take a nap. And so, okay, I don't want to stop playing with my granddaughter, but I'll let her take a nap. So they put Hannah down for a nap in one of the back rooms. And about two hours later, he hears this squeak. He knows she's awake. And he's running down the hall to get his granddaughter up saying, Hannah's awake. And David Ferguson said, that's the way God feels about you every morning. Michael's awake. He doesn't have this heart to you that says, okay, David's awake. What in the world is he going to get into today? This, oh my goodness. We had a reprieve while he was sleeping. No, David's awake. And that's God's heart toward you. That's a good picture. That's it's a great a picture, picture, yeah. What is one thing you'd long for every believer to know, to do, to live, to grasp? Hmm. Well, I, I guess I guess I would say to build the habit of a, a relentless pursuit of God and a relentless submission to his book. And I think if we could build that habit into us, it would just help us terrifically in life, both in terms of where am I looking for, for fellowship and joy, and it's in the pursuit of Christ, and where am I looking for authority, and it's in his book. Michael, I, I just become deeply convinced that the average American believer is far more discipled by the culture than by God's book. Far more discipled. Yeah. If you just look at the impact of, of the social media and the movies and the stuff people read and the friends they talk to, et cetera, et cetera, I just, I encounter so many people who believe stuff that God does not declare in his book. Two thoughts is, you know, talked to Mark Bailey recently in our big book series, and we were comparing notes on, do you look at Christians' lives, are they in the word, and not to be legalistic, but every day, and praying every day, the corollary to the joy in their life, to the less anxiety, the happiness in marriage and family. And it's so perfunctory that, you know, 
if you're not in the word, and I, I say it this way, if you're not in the word, you cannot grow. You will not grow. And the problem with so much of our culture, and you, you've lived a lot of places too. You've been in Africa. You've been in Texas. You've been in Alaska, several places in Alaska, in Idaho Falls, Idaho, in Houston. Now you're in uh, outside of Boise, Idaho. Each of those cultures is different, but the experiential theology is now more important than what that book right there has inside it. Yeah, it's so true, my friend. And I I mean, I use an illustration which most people can't relate to now, but my wife and I were dating back in the era of handwritten letters. I was working for the Park Service in a wilderness camp in Arizona. Twice a week, the mule train literally would come up with our food it. and my, wife's or my, my girlfriend's letter at the time. And I would open that letter and read it and, and reread read it, it and read, read between the lines. Yeah. <laughs> and I would see how she signed it. Was it love Kathy or I love you, Kathy, or what was it? You know. And, and I went through those letters seven times before the next one came. And God wrote me a love letter. Why would I not cherish it like that? You know, To, to think of a guy getting a love letter from his girlfriend, pitching it in his drawer and not even not reading open it. it. It's yeah. Just, yeah, let turn up the heat. That's the, you're you're in the army in World War II, and you get a letter. Maybe a month the mail run comes, and you get a letter, and how you would every word and oh, save it. Yeah, you'd save yeah. it and press it. Yeah. What is your greatest disappointment in your own context, ministry, vocation, community, church, whatever? I would I would say my greatest disappointment is that a lot of people whom I really care about have trusted Christ, but gotten distracted. They're not pursuing him with a, with a passion, gotten distracted by a whole variety of things. And, you know, they're not, they're not selling drugs. They're not producing child pornography. They're not, you know, going out there just completely violating the law of God, but just distracted from uh, the pursuit of Christ. And, you know, it, it happens in my own life, too. I'm not trying to be uh, arrogant, condescending. I wish you people were like me. That's not the message. Right. I wish you weren't like me. I wish you were pursuing God with just a greater zeal and a greater faithfulness. Is it Second Timothy where he mentions uh, Demas who has left me and um, pursuing the world, basically? And I, I've often wanted to write an article called The Way of Demas. You know, we don't know anything about him, but right. you, you you do see that. And, and I think, you know, you and I have been overseas enough to know when you don't have props, when you don't have health insurance and guaranteed income and nice places to live and your life is more hand to mouth with food and money, you have to depend on God. And unfortunately, the wealth of the West has made us depend on our retirement funds, our income, our health insurance. I mean, think how we worship healthcare in this country in the past uh, 20 years now. I mean, it's a God to it. It's a small G God. We're entitled to have it. And yet we you articulated we're going to die, live with a purpose, and not to be morbid, but live with a purpose. And at the same time, it, it's almost like until you strip Maslow's hierarchy of needs away, you're not going to really trust him because those props keep you from that resting in him. They're, they're a huge hurdle to resting in him. And some of the people I admire the very most are the people who have the props, but who are still on a white hot pursuit of God and just say, this stuff is a gift. It's a blessing. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad for it. But this is my direction. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I know people like that, Michael, who just, they have it all, but they just understand. It doesn't hold them. It they doesn't understand hold who them. God is. Yeah. What's your greatest encouragement in your context, ministry, vocation, community, etc. Michael, I would say my greatest encouragement is just that God is giving me meaningful stuff to do in life and purpose today. And as I said, having retired, not having an office to go to, not having 
you know, natural connections, not having all the stuff you have when you have a specific role and responsibility and teammates. But but the Lord just brings to me uh, stuff to do that's meaningful, relationships that are meaningful, fun stuff to do. Uh, I got to build a kayak last year from a kit, uh, met a great guy who came, drove, drove out from Bozeman, Montana to my house, spent five days with me, mentoring me, getting this thing going so it wouldn't, you know, rot in my garage and, <laughs> and went with five friends to Grand Teton National Park in, in, in my kayak and, you know, saw a bear and a moose and a wolf. And I mean, it's just generosity of God to, to be able to experience these things. And I've, I've got a pretty crazy piece of my life, which is, I believe that life begins at conception and not at birth. And I've got a number of reasons for that. But I decided to myself, my actual age in life is the day I was conceived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where you're older, yeah. Right. Nine so months older. I go nine months back from my birthday to December 19th, 1951. I got no documentation. <laughs> Give or take a week. Yeah. <laughs> Give or take a week. But uh, if that's the day I was conceived, then I'm at uh, 25,258 days today. That's a lot of days. Handed to me as a gift. I've got, an, I've got the day, maybe all of it, maybe part of it. I don't know. I don't know if I have tomorrow or not. But I just see that as a towering gift. And I don't want to compare myself to people. But compared to people, my life is charmed, my friend. I, mean, I had a bad year for health with uh, hernia and AFib in my heart and arthritis and Raynaud's disease and uh, COVID. And I mean, I had, a, I had a rough health year, but I would still have to say my, my life is, is charmed. You know, I look at you, that's one thing I think, is your life's been charmed. Yeah. Plus, <laughs> plus this, the criminal handsomeness. Well, that's true. You know, what do you tell yourself every day when you look in the mirror? I say, I wish I'd have been born rich instead of so darn good looking. We'll leave it right there. If you were going to write yourself a letter, 18-year-old David F. Gibson, what would you tell yourself, doctor? I would say to myself, first of all, trust Jesus, which I did a year later. I would say to myself, stop worrying, just stop it. And I would also say to myself, develop some better habits. I had become a huge believer in habits. And I started life with horrible habits, just too lazy to make myself do what I need to do. And I would have said to my 18-year-old me, develop some better habits. I don't know if he'd have listened, but he'd have been better off if he would have listened. See, that's interesting because I look at you from the time I met you as one of the most disciplined, habitual guys I've ever known. (laughs) So, you know, had that happened, you probably would have climbed Rainier twice or something without oxygen. Probably would have loved Jesus better. What do you want your epitaph to read? Michael, I have been giving a huge amount of thought to that recently because two things. Living Life Backwards, the book I read, motivated me to say, think about the day of your death to free you up to live well while you're alive. That's one thing. The second thing is I had three weeks last year, like three, four months ago, when my doctor was convinced that I had metastasized cancer. And through a test they had done, they saw this shadow on my spine and uh, so I spent about three weeks thinking I might have metastasized cancer. Uh, in the kindness of God, I didn't. In the kindness of God, I wasn't anxious during that time. But it, it really motivated me to think a great deal about this whole question of the end of my life. And I just said, I'm going to be intentional about embracing the day of my death. So we have a cemetery plot at Dry Creek Cemetery, about one mile from my house. I can literally walk up there from my house and see it. I bought my own urn. I bought a 
beautiful blue urn. It turns out you have to buy them by body size. I had to get an XL, extra large. <laughs> so, For those of you that can't see, Dave is a big galoot. He's bigger yeah, than me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I bought the urn. Uh, I wrote an outline of my service, and I called it the celebration of God's goodness to Dave Gibson. Uh, I don't like the concept of the celebration of life because right. if we're going to celebrate Dave Gibson, it's a mighty small party. You know, I mean, mm, let's yeah. let's figure out something else to do. So I, I wrote that service. Uh, I also wrote my epitaph to you to your point, and I was going to put on there something like, "I told you I was sick." Yeah, right. Exactly. Organize it last. Uh, <laughs> Organize it last. <laughs> here lies a, a funny and wonderful man. I mean, I had a lot of ideas, but handsome and humble. Handsome and humble hoot. But what, what I ended up with was John 10, 41, which it says this. Speaking of John the Baptist, he did no miracles, but everything he said about Jesus was true. And I just think that's such a great summary of my life because I've not done any miracles. I've not done anything miraculous or close to it. But since I was 19, I think everything I've said about Jesus has been true. And that's the core question in life, you know. Well, who was it said, uh, A.W. Tozer, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. And when I think about Jesus, I say, he's the son of God, God incarnate, God come in the flesh, died, buried, resurrected, coming back. He is the most compelling being who ever walked on this planet. And he's the only being that you would ever walk down the sidewalk and say, I must get on my face. I've seen people on the sidewalk I wanted to punch, run from, laugh at, etc. Never encountered a person in my 69 years of life who I would say, oh, I want to get on my face. Jesus is the most compelling being. I love in Revelation when he, he John, falls on his face, and uh, I have this strange sense of humor like you, that one of the reasons eternity is eternity is because every time Jesus walks by, we're all going to fall on our face, <laughs> and he's going to pick us up and say, you can stand up now. <laughs> No, I can't. It's yeah. you. It's yeah. you. I, I'm, I'm, uh, worth, I'm worthless and unworthy, and we fall on our face again. But I, I think our, and again, I go back to this Western Christianity and the props we depend on, and you and I have homes that, you know, I, mean, I have a ridiculous home. I never thought a pastor would have a home like this. We have money. My wife is a, a very successful person in her own right. We, we can give money away. We can do things that, you know, a lot of people can't do. And I go, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve one thing in that he's been kind to me. When we see him, none of this is going to matter. And we put so much stock and trade on the here and now and so much stock and trade on our, our pedigree, our accomplishments, our children, our grandchildren. The, I mean, how many grandchildren do you have? You know, I mean, <laughs> all this nonsense we get into. And yet it doesn't matter in the grand scheme. He matters. And why in the world did he love to glutes like Dave Gibson and Michael Easley. Incredible question. Is a mystery we'll never know. Dr. David F. Gibson, you can find him if you go to Amazon and search for books by Dave Gibson. Be sure you put the F in there. Your first book is... Travel Required. Travel Required. Your second book, which is forthcoming, is going to be called... In My Father's Wake. In My Father's Wake. And I've got to read some of it. It's a powerful, powerful book. May I give a shameless plug, which... Absolutely. That's your, what we do around here. Your guy is welcome to cut out. <laughs> Corkin, no, no. CorkinGoodSermons.com. 
300 Messages by Dr. David F. Gibson. And he's not joking. It is. Corkin Good Sermons. Is it there a G in there? Or C O R K I N? Goodsermons.com. Corkin Goodsermons.com. So don't forget, don't put a G in there. Thank you, bro. And we'll be in touch soon. Thank you for listening and supporting this ministry. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.